please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from, go, from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, this Lord's Day to be together, and we thank you for your amazing grace that we've been singing about. And Lord, I just pray that this morning, as we hear from the scriptures, as we hear from Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would give us a fresh revelation and glimpse into your amazing grace from this amazing story. Hit us again, Lord, with how beautiful you are in what you've done for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of the woman who was caught in adultery is undoubtedly one of the most fascinating and impressive stories recorded in the Gospels. Not only because of its memorable content but also because of its unusual textual history, which is what makes it so fascinating. Now, in your Bibles, you probably noticed, or your Bibles, you, you, you probably notice your Bibles indicate that the story that we just read is not contained within the original Gospel of John. Have you noticed that? Most of your Bibles, if not all of them, will either have some footnote that'll say this, this story from actually from the 53rd verse of chapter 7 to verse 11, is not originally contained in the Gospel of John. There'll be a footnote. Maybe it'll be in brackets like in my Bible, or there'll be an asterisk there. It's agreed upon by virtually all scholars that the Apostle John did not write this story, and it was not originally part of the Gospel of John. How do they know that? Well, there are several lines of evidence that tell us this. First of all, while most of our Greek manuscripts and Latin manuscripts do contain this story, 
the best Greek manuscripts that we have and the earliest manuscripts that we have all omit the story. It's simply not there. Also, almost all of the early commentators, if not all of them, I think it might even be all of them, omit this when they comment on the Gospel of John. So they're going through and they go through chapter 7 and when they finish chapter 7, chapter 8 begins in verse 12. It's like they're not even aware of this story even being there in the Gospel of John. And then a third important line of evidence is that the style of this story, the style of the text, the style of the, and the language here is not Johannine or John-like. There's different words that are not found anywhere else in John. There's different, a different style of writing that kind of departs from the rest of the Gospel of John. And another interesting thing is even in those Greek manuscripts that contain the story, it's not always placed here. It's often placed at the end of the Gospel of John, like as an appendix, or even at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And many of those manuscripts, just like our Bibles, footnote or bracket the story, indicating that there's something here that's not quite original. So you might ask, well, what's the story doing here then in the Gospel of John if it's not original to the Gospel of John? Well, the issue is not quite so simple. The vast majority of scholars who think about these things are agreed that this is an an authentic story of Jesus. Even though it wasn't originally in the Gospel of John and written by John, it is an authentic story of Jesus. That's what scholars basically agree. And though it wasn't written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, it's believed by these scholars that this story really happened. And it was passed on orally. People were telling the story frequently. And eventually it was written down and somebody appended it to the Gospels. And some of the manuscripts it was put in. How do we know that it was a real story of Jesus? Well, we have some lines of evidence as well here. So it's, it's, it's um, agreed upon by scholars that this story was known by Christians from the very beginning. So Christians were aware of this story, and they talked about this story, and you can read about it in some of their writings. Also, the story bears marks of authenticity and also eyewitness. The story itself seems like it's told by an eyewitness. Just the the movements, the manner of it all, the time of day, um, all the details seem to indicate that it was real, and someone was watching, someone was there and saw this. But I think an interesting line of evidence is this, that most Christians would join together in saying that this story captures something exceedingly precious. Would you agree? That it captures something of the essence of the gospel. And so this is why this story is so fascinating to me, brothers and sisters, is that while it's not original to any of the gospels, the historical evidence for it being a real incident in Jesus' life is strong, And the content is so beautiful and so thoroughly in keeping with the Gospels that once someone put that story in the manuscripts, it was very difficult throughout history to get it out. Very difficult. I mean, how many of you would be in favor of getting this story out of the Bible? There's a hesitancy, right? There's a hesitancy because we're saying, yeah, but it seems to capture so well the Gospel, right? And if you think about it, and the scholars help us, they say there really is real precedent to believe Jesus, this happened in Jesus' life. So what do we do with this? 
One scholar puts it this way, Evidently, however, all those who have examined it and who are not sure of its authorship feel that there is something about it which makes them feel that they cannot leave it out. And so this is what we're dealing with this morning, a text that wasn't originally there in the Gospel of John, but here it is in our Bibles, and its unusual textual history is tribute to its impressive content. People have been impressed by this story for the last 2,000 years, right from the very beginning until today. I'd like us to consider this story this morning not as a part of John's Gospel, and not as a story written by John, but for what it really is, an independent record of Jesus' words and actions, and it is no less impressive for that. I'd like to share a little anecdote about this story. In December 1963, a man by the name of Arthur Katz was traveling by boat from Brindisi, Italy, to Corinth, Greece. He describes the boat as full of people, it was stinky and stuffy. He was 34 years old. Art Katz was a, a Jewish atheist and an educator who had become totally disillusioned with his life with his marriage, with his worldview. He was totally confused about what he was doing in life. And he was an atheist, but he, he decided to take basically a sabbatical from his family and from uh, his work. And he traveled across the world just trying to figure out what he believed and what was real and what, what was true. And so he's 34 years old on this boat, and he met somebody who was reading a little New Testament, and he had never read the New Testament before, even though he totally hated Christianity, and he hated Jesus, and he hated Christians. But he had never actually read the New Testament. It was, it was on that boat where he asked the guy, could I borrow that? And he was reading the New Testament for the very first time from the beginning, and he was reading the Gospels. And as he was reading the Gospels, he was absolutely fascinated by Jesus, who he'd never read about before. And he said he was so drawn to Jesus, so gripped by him, by his message, by his character, by his actions, by his conflict with the religious leaders in his day. And he really found that Jesus was becoming his hero. He just loved Jesus as he was reading this. And he got to John chapter 8, to this story here. And he saw that they put before him this problem or this dilemma with this woman. And Art was, uh, he said his pulse began to quicken. I'm, this is from his autobiography. His pulse began to quicken, and he, put, and he closed the book because he was afraid to read what Jesus was going to say. <laughs> and he closed the book, and he was an intellectual man, and he racked his brain trying to think of what Jesus could say in light of this problem because they brought before him this adulterous woman. The law was clearly against her. The law said she should be stoned, but he loved Jesus' compassion. He loved Jesus' message for sinners, and he just didn't know what, to, what Jesus could say. And so he exhausted his mind thinking of what Jesus could say, and he actually gave up. He said, I don't know. And so he opened the book with fear and trembling, very afraid. <laughs> and here's, when he read what Jesus answered in verse 7, i just quote what Art Katz said, I quote, I gasped. A sword had been plunged deep into my being. It was numbing, shocking, yet thrilling because the answer was so utterly perfect. It defied cerebral examination. It cut across 
every major issue I had ever anguished upon in my life, truth, justice, righteousness, integrity. I knew that what I had read transcended human knowledge and comprehension. It had to be divine. And I think art captures the way most people feel when they read this story. This story truly seems to capture the beauty of grace in a way that only God could do. It confirms verse 46 of chapter 7. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. So this morning as we look at this story, I'd like to look at three things. Number one, I'd like us to think carefully about the nature of the dilemma, because I think we often kind of skim over the story quickly, but I'd like to just meditate a little bit more deeply about the dilemma that they put Jesus in. Secondly, we'll look at Christ's answer to the dilemma. And thirdly, I'd like us to look at the wonder, the true wonder of this story, the true climax of this story, which can be missed. So number one, the nature of the dilemma. Let's look at the text again, verse one. We'll work our way to it. In verse one, we read, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now we know that whenever Jesus was in Jerusalem, he spent a lot of time on the Mount of Olives. He wouldn't usually spend the night in Jerusalem. He'd go to uh, spend time in Bethany with his friends there. That was kind of his retreat and his getaway from the animosity that he felt in Jerusalem and from all the chaos and confusion of the crowds. So Mount of Olives was his getaway, breathing space. It's interesting that the Bible tells us that one day Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. When he comes again, he'll come back to the Mount of Olives. And it's interesting that though many people in his day were confused about him and were and we're expressing animosity towards him, and there was all that chaos, one day when he returns, every single person is going to know who Jesus is and that he is the Son of God and that he is the Messiah. All the confusion that exists in our day today about Jesus will be dispelled when he returns to come to the Mount of Olives. I can't help but think that when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, he was thinking about that, you know, and, and being comforted by that or being encouraged by that, that one day everything will be clear. And so he'd go there. Verse 2 tells us that early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So we see here again that Jesus was a teacher. I hope that when you think of Jesus and his earthly ministry, you think of him as a teacher, and our responsibility, if we were there in Jesus' day or today, is to follow his teaching. We're disciples, we're learners of him. Among all that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, I'd like to say that primarily the important thing, apart from his atoning death on the cross, was his teaching. And if you lived in Jesus' day, the primarily important thing that you needed to do was learn from Jesus. Once when Jesus was teaching a group of people in his house and his family came to visit him and they said, we need to talk to him, They said, Jesus, your family's at the door. And he basically said, who's my family? My family, and he points to those who are sitting there listening to him, are those who hear the will of God and do the will of God. So I just want to encourage us this morning about the importance of teaching in Christianity. 
Because sometimes people get confused about that. They think, you know, Christianity is not about doctrine. Christianity is about action, right? Christianity is about how you live your life. It's undoubtedly true that teaching and doctrine is not the only thing in Christianity. There is a life to be lived. There is good works to do. But I do believe that the axis upon which all of our good works in our life is lived, the center is actually teaching and doctrine. And receiving teaching is an essential part of the Christian life. Do you believe that? Being a disciple, a learner, and a student of God's word and of God's truth is is the essential part of being a Christian. Hearing and believing. Everything else follows from that. It's not some modern Western Christian thing to be hearing God's word and learning. You know, we come to church, here's a sermon. This is not some Western modern thing. This is what Christianity is really about. Hearing the truth, hearing the gospel, believing it, learning more about our God. Amen? It's an act of worship to be taught and to learn from Jesus. It always has been and it always will be. Now verse 3 to 5 gives us the drama here of the story. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery... And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So I want you to imagine the scene. It's early in the morning. Jesus is teaching a crowd of people. And then there's a bustling. He's teaching. He's interrupted. You're sitting in that crowd listening. And all of a sudden there's a stir and these Leaders, scribes and Pharisees, very, very important people, by the way. This isn't just some crazy mob. They come dragging this woman who's either stunned with fear and silent or kicking and screaming, one of the two. And they bring her before Jesus. And verse 6, the beginning of verse 6 tells us that they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds to accuse him. So it really is a trap. They're bringing a trap to Jesus. In other words, they're bringing this woman to Jesus not because they love righteousness, not because they love the law, not because they hate adultery. That's not why they're bringing this woman to Jesus. But they're bringing this woman to Jesus because they hate Christ. That's why they're doing it. Under the semblance of, we're standing up for what is right. We're we're fighting for the purity of Israel. That's That's what they're pretending to do but they're actually hating Jesus. And so the story just is full of hypocrisy. It's true that they caught her in adultery. This isn't a setup. She really was guilty. And it is true that these men were opposed to adultery. But the issue in the story isn't simply, are you opposed to adultery or not? They're coming with this woman to Jesus saying, are you going to honor the law, Jesus? The law says she should be stoned. Are you going to honor the law? But the hypocrisy is that they themselves are seizing this opportunity to attack the lawgiver and the only righteous one. They don't honor the law themselves at all. They're trying to trap him in all of this, and that's dishonoring God. It's common for people to point out the absence of the man, right? Where's the man? She's caught in the act of adultery. Well, where's the second 
individual in this sin. And it's common to point that out and to say, see, that shows their hypocrisy. That shows they're blameworthy. They didn't grab the man. But I think actually that's, that's an unproductive road to go down. There's a number of things that could explain why the man is there. Maybe he got away. Maybe he's being harangued by another mob somewhere else. and They just split up. Who knows? But the story doesn't infallibly tell us that they're, being, they're doing something blameworthy because the man's not there. Rather, the glaring blameworthy thing is that they're dishonoring the law while professing to honor it, seeking to lay a trap for Jesus. That's the problem here, not whether the, why the man is not there. So let's keep that in mind, what the real hypocrisy is. Now let us consider the nature of the dilemma that they put Jesus in. In verse 4, I want you to notice that they address Jesus as teacher. Teacher. That is, they're approaching him as a teacher, and they're appealing to him as a teacher of the law, and they have a question concerning the law for him. In verse 5, we see what they ask him. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now let's be clear on what they're asking him. On another occasion, they laid a trap for Jesus and they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, right? There's a difference between these two traps. In the, in the taxes trap, they were asking him, is it lawful? They were asking him, what is your opinion of the law? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes or not? What does the law say on this matter? That's what they're asking. But here, they're not asking, what does the law say in this matter of adultery? They're stating to Jesus, we know what the law says about this, right? I'm not asking your opinion on what we should do according to the law. The law clearly says such a woman should be stoned. What do you say about that, Jesus? Should we honor the law? Should we carry out its injunction here and now? That's the question. So it's a little different than the other. Shall we obey the law? We know what it tells us to do. Shall we do it? The sin of adultery is a very serious sin, true? It's one of the Ten Commandments. God, with his own voice, spoke, you shall not commit adultery. And according to the law of Moses, it's not merely a private sin. It is a private sin. But it's not merely a private sin. It's a sin, according to the law of Moses, against the order of society. You're sinning against the people when you commit adultery. It's not just some personal sin. And according to Deuteronomy 22, 22, where God says that adulterers should be stoned or killed, he says, so that you'll purge the evil away from Israel or out of Israel. So, according to God, adultery in Israel stains everybody. It's a sin against the whole nation. And of course, as a Jew, you knew that the whole nation had to be righteous before God, right? It's not just a private sin. And so, to kill an adulterer is to clean Israel. Okay? And you'll remember, in the Old Testament, a story in which Phineas 
it's not quite adultery, but it's similar. He's forbidden to sleep with a non-Israelite. He's forbidden to marry a non-Israelite. The Israelites are forbidden to do that. And there's an Israelite who brings a Midianite into the camp. And it's a brazen iniquity. And Phineas is so indignant about this that he takes a spear and he drives the spear through them both in their tent. Purging iniquity from Israel. Against this backdrop, we should realize that this woman's life was in serious jeopardy. Because here you have the leaders who are coming with this Phineas-like zeal. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. It's not just a private disgusting sin. It's a sin against the order of Israel. We need to purge the evil out of Israel. And we're here ready to do it. And we know that the Jews were willing to stone people. We see them stone Stephen, right? We saw them pick up stones to stone Jesus spontaneously. So they're not actually afraid to stone whatever the Romans might say. Her life is in serious jeopardy. Yet it is a trap. They're ultimately not concerned with the purity of Israel and the law. They're ultimately concerned with bringing Jesus down. So they're hypocrites. They're looking for a ground to accuse him. Now my question is, what accusation were they hoping for? I don't think it's enough for us to simply articulate what Jesus' options were, okay? That's important to do. We need to articulate his options. What could Jesus have said in this situation? At least according to the Pharisees and the leaders, what could Jesus have done? But I think an even more important question is, what did they expect him to do? Of these two options, when they put him into this dilemma, they thought they were going to get him. So what were they expecting him to do? So first of all, what are the options? There's typically two approaches to this passage in articulating the nature of the dilemma. Number one, many people think that the leaders were putting Jesus in a dilemma between Moses and Rome. Okay, So basically they're saying, Jesus, Moses tells us we should stone her. So are we going to obey Moses and bring upon us the wrath of Rome, because it was understood that in those days uh, the Romans did not allow the Jews to execute people apart from their own authority. Not that the Jews wouldn't sometimes do that. So do we, do we obey Moses or, and get in trouble with Rome, or do we obey Rome and say, no, we're not going to do the law of Moses because the Romans won't let us, and get in trouble with God and Moses, basically? So are you anti-Moses or anti-Rome, Jesus? Which is it? If you're anti-Moses, you lose, because we can now accuse you as being anti-law to the people. And if you're anti-Rome, you lose, because we'll go and rat on you, and the Romans will come and get you. This is what many people put forward as the nature of the dilemma. I actually think that's mistaken. I don't think that's the nature of the dilemma at all. First of all, to me, it seems like the issue of Rome is foreign to this passage. I don't... I don't feel the presence of Rome in this passage. I don't feel like that's what the dilemma or the quandary is. They're not asking Jesus to stone this woman. They're asking Jesus' opinion on whether she should be stoned or not. And if it's just the opinion that's the problem, really, if if Jesus' opinion was, yes, she should be stoned, and then they're going to go rat on him, they don't even need the woman at all. They could have just come to him and said, hey, Jesus, should we stone adulterers when we find him? Yes. Hey, we're going to go rat on him. 
It just seems like the woman would be unnecessary. And another point is Jesus wouldn't be the only person who would get in trouble if really the Romans were the issue. If they all stoned her, then Rome would probably pour out problems upon all of them. So it just doesn't seem to me like that's accurate. That it's not the, the problem isn't between Ro- Moses and Rome here. So another approach to the dilemma is this, that the leaders are putting Jesus in a dilemma between Moses and between himself. It's not Rome that's the issue. It's Moses and Jesus. That is, if you say, no, we should not stone this woman, then you're anti-Moses and we can accuse you of being a lawbreaker. But if you say, yes, we should stone her and uphold Moses, then you contradict yourself. You contradict yourself. And we need to remember that Jesus openly proclaimed himself to be the one who came not to judge, but to save. We already saw this in the Gospel of John. You can see it in the synoptics. Jesus came not to condemn, not to judge, but to deliver. Jesus' preaching was that every single person was a sinner. The leaders, including the adulterers and the harlots and the prostitutes, they're all sinners, but that whoever believes in him will be saved and forgiven by God and inheritors of the kingdom of God. And Jesus had a reputation. He was known as the friend of sinners. That was an accusation they actually brought against him. So his preaching was nobody is righteous, but yet he reached out to those who were sinful and he spent time with them and he gave them hope and he gave them compassion and promised them salvation. This just drove the leaders nuts. That's what Jesus was doing. That's what he was known for. That's what he was hated for by the leadership in Israel. Now, John Calvin, I think, captures the point here when he says this. Their intention was to constrain Christ to depart from his office of preaching grace, that he might appear to be fickle and unsteady. They expressed They expressly state that adulteresses are condemned by Moses, that they may hold Christ bound by the sentence already given by the law, for it was not lawful to acquit those whom the law condemned. And on the other hand, if he had consented to the law, he might be thought to be somewhat unlike himself. Okay? So if he he says stone the woman, he's acting unlike himself. So those seem to be his options. Side with Moses and be unlike yourself or be yourself and get in trouble with Moses. What did they expect him to do? That's a more important question. Did they really think Jesus would act unlike himself? I think the answer is no. I believe that their expectation in this story was based upon how Jesus was, and they expected him to be like himself. They, I think they expected him to not condone stoning the woman, and therefore would expose himself as being anti-Moses and anti-law. Basically, we think this man is unlawful, and we're going to prove it to everybody. All of his grace preaching and things, it's antinomian, and we're going to show you. We're going to bring a clear-cut case She's definitely guilty. The law definitely condemns her, and Jesus isn't going to condemn her because we know what Jesus is like. 
And he'll, then we'll be able to point the finger at him and accuse him of not being for Moses. Would you agree? I mean, do you think their point was, we're going to show everybody how lawful Jesus really is? You know, is that what they were thinking? We're going to show everybody that he's going to side with Moses against Rome or against even himself. He's going to prove that he really is lawful and he's really one of us. I don't think that's what they thought he would do or that what they wanted him to do. That would just basically, in their minds, confirm that he is lawful. So it's not, we'll show everyone he's really lawful, but we'll show everyone he's really unlawful. And this is the nature of the dilemma. It's actually a dilemma between grace and law, between mercy and judgment. The law requires her death and cannot be broken. What is Jesus going to do? So we come now to Christ's answer to the dilemma. Now we'll notice in verse 6, before answering, Jesus first stoops down and draws in the sand. What does he mean by that? What is he doing here? How many of you know there's a lot of opinions about what Jesus was writing in the sand, right? A lot of opinions. Some people think he was buying time to think about it. Have you ever heard that? It was a tough dilemma. He needed some time. He kind of stalled so he could think. But according to verse 8, after he gave his answer, he stooped back down and continued to write. So I don't think that's probably right. He wasn't stalling for time. Was he writing scripture? Some people suggest he was writing out of scripture. Or he was writing down names. Maybe their names or the names of other prostitutes that some of these leaders had Some people say maybe they visited or was he writing down their sins or a whole list of sins or all of the Ten Commandments or what? The answer to the question is we simply do not know what Jesus wrote in the dirt. We can speculate there's no point in saying that's what it was. But we can dismiss a common idea. It's commonly thought that Jesus was writing something convicting in the ground and when the people saw what he had written, then they felt convicted and they left. Have you ever heard that interpretation? But look at verse 9. It tells us that when the people heard what Jesus said, then they began to leave. So we have no indication in the text that what Jesus wrote on the ground was the cause of people leaving. So I think we can dismiss that idea that he wrote something that convicted them and they saw that and said, I'm out of here. They left because of what he said, not because of what he wrote. Because we're not told what he wrote, brothers and sisters, I think that what he wrote is unimportant. But what is important is that he wrote. G. Campbell Morgan captures it perfectly, I believe when he says this, what he wrote, we do not know, but the attitude was everything. It was the attitude of attention to something else and refusal to satisfy his questioners. It was the attitude of dismissal. 
And I believe that is what's going on here. They come to him, they say, what do you say? And it's a, you know, this is a serious moment. This woman's life is on the line. And Jesus is given this really difficult question and he seems to just doodle in the sand. An attitude of dismissal. In fact, look in verse 7. It seems like he's ignoring them because in verse 7 they have to persist in asking him the question. So it's like he's just ignoring them completely. Did you hear what we said? What do you think? Tell us. What should we do? And he's just kind of writing it. So they're persisting and persisting. Answer us, Jesus. Answer us. You're putting us off. William Hendrickson says, This was a silence that spoke louder than words. I think he was showing disgust and contempt for the situation. Whose sin, brothers and sisters, did Jesus consider worse, the woman's or the leadership's sin, do you think? Here was a woman who had committed a serious sin, no doubt. But here was a group of men who were not only sinful themselves in various ways, even if they never had committed adultery, the act of adultery, but here was a group of men who were not only sinful, but they were hateful of the truth of God. The whole point here is they hate Christ, and so they hate God, and they're dishonoring God and his son and his law under the hypocritical pretense of honoring it. And I think Jesus was disgusted by the situation. Brothers and sisters and friends, God considers self-righteousness to be worse than adultery. Worse than rape? Worse than cold-blooded murder? Do you believe that? Suppose you've got a cold-blooded murderer and a group of people drug this cold-blooded murderer before Jesus in an attempt to trap him. And they said, he should be stoned. And they're self-righteous and they think they're better than this guy and they hate Jesus because of his preaching of righteousness. Which sin do you think is worse, the cold-blooded murderer or the group that drugged the cold-blooded murderer before Jesus? And that's saying a lot because adultery, rape, and cold-blooded murder are really serious, bad, hell-deserving sins to God. To say that self-righteousness is worse is saying a lot. It's not minimizing those other sins. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Verse 28. And we get a sense here of the, of the scales of God's justice and what he considers to be worse. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28, the author of Hebrews says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's kind of what we're talking about in John 8, isn't it? You violate the law, you're in trouble. But verse 29 tells us there's something worse than violating the law of Moses. And the law of Moses is beautiful. The law of Moses tells you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your neighbors, yourself. You violate that, you're in big trouble. There's something worse than that. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. Now we're not talking here just about pride. We're talking about self-righteous unbelief. 
that says no to Christ. Self-righteousness ultimately is saying, I don't need Christ. His death was pointless. His blood is common. His grace is unnecessary. That is what self-righteousness is. I'm not talking about mere pride. We all experience pride. But that principled unbelief that says, I hate Jesus and what he stands for. It accuses God of being a liar, doesn't it? For God has testified concerning his righteousness. God has told us what righteousness is. God has told us that none of us are righteous. God has testified of his son that righteousness and salvation is only found in the death of Christ and by believing in him. And self-righteousness says, no, righteousness isn't what you say it is. It's what I say it is. You're a liar. I'm telling the truth. No, righteousness, I am not unrighteous. You testify that I'm guilty. I deny that. I make excuses. I cover my grounds. I'm actually good and worthy. And self-righteousness says, righteousness isn't found in believing in Jesus Christ and in what he did. Righteousness is found in what we do. So it's making God a liar as well. And it not only breaks the law, it disregards the law. And a person who is self-righteous, who does not believe in Christ, it's impossible for them to be forgiven because they turn away from that which would forgive them. All sins can be forgiven. That's the beautiful thing about Christianity is by putting our faith in Jesus, confessing our sins, The Bible doesn't say we have to stop sinning in order to be forgiven. It tells us we need to believe in him. But if you reject him and don't believe in him, you can't be forgiven of your sins. It's in this understanding, brothers and sisters, that Jesus straightens up and speaks to them his answer. He sees through them The crowds don't see through them, probably. But Jesus sees through them. And can you imagine when he spoke this? He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Can you imagine his moral authority when he spoke that word? Can you imagine his eyes burning through them and his words striking them like arrows when he stood up and said this word with that authority that he had as the son of God who knows the righteousness of God, who knows the hypocrisy of these men. He bypasses their dichotomous question. Heads, I win. Tails, you lose. That's what they thought. And he produces a third option that they hadn't even considered. The leaders were thinking, do we stone her or do we not? Do we honor the law and stone her or do we dishonor the law and not stone her? And Jesus brings forth a third option. Who shall stone her? Would it honor the law if you stoned her? And Jesus rebukes them here, and he summons them to judge themselves. You guys are focused on me. You guys are focused on her. You need to take a look at yourselves here. The law does say that she should be stoned, but should you be the ones to do it? You hypocrites. You you who dishonor the law and yet point the finger at her that say she's dishonoring the law? Are you really better than she is? No, you're worse. His answer is brilliant because he shows that 
He has no objection with the law, but with the people. Amen? There's no objection in the law. He's not saying Moses got it wrong, you know? He's not saying, you know, I think we should stand against Moses in this situation. He doesn't say that. He says, you know what, you're right. She is guilty. She should be stoned. That's what is, that is what is lawful to do. But this law, even though it is good, requires in its context a good people and a good society to carry out this law. And you are not that. And so he honors the law by saying, stone her. But he delivers her by saying, you may throw the first stone at her if you yourself are without sin. The theologian A.M. Hunter said, it is this delicate balance of justice and mercy which makes this one of the immortal stories about Jesus. And it's interesting, in verse 8, he just stoops down again and writes on the ground. I like what these commentators have to say about verse 8. Marcus Dodd says, Having shot this arrow, Jesus again stooped and continued writing on the ground, intimating that so far as he was concerned, the matter was closed. (laughs) No more argument. (laughs) I said it, I'm going back to doodling. This commentator, Randolph Tasker, I like what he says. Jesus stoops down again and leaves his words to accomplish the task for which he uttered them. And so we see in verse 9, they did just that. When the people heard what he said, they knew they leave. Older first, it says, and then the younger, because the older, the wiser. They knew they had been beaten. They, they, they just knew Jesus had looked through them and he saw in them what was worse than this woman. I pray that you and I would be wise also. How many of you know there's, it's easy to get judgmental? Right? It's easy to look at the sins of other people, particularly those who are closest to us, and who have hurt us, and we get picking up stones. And we need to hear this afresh, don't we? He that is without sin cast the first stone. May we also be wise and hear it, drop our stones and realize, you know what? We're all guilty. We're all unrighteous. We don't have the right to, to judge, to be judgmental, to condemn, to pick up stones, to hurl them at one another, to attack one another. May we also learn the mercy of God here in this story and may we give that to one another in our own lives. This is an enduring lesson. But as glorious as Christ's answer was to this dilemma, and it truly was glorious, his answer is not the most wonderful thing about this story. And verse 7 is not the climax of the story, brothers and sisters. I'd like to just close this morning by considering what the true climax of the story is, what the true wonder of this story really is. It's not verse 7. It's not his saying, as amazing as that is. It is in what follows that we see Christ's true glory. Because the woman is left alone with Jesus. She had just gone through the most embarrassing and shameful thing that could ever happen to a human being this side of eternity. Could you imagine? How many of you know you're a wicked sinner and most people don't know it? (laughs) 
How would you like to be exposed before everybody and be embarrassed and shamed? She went through that. She really did sin, and she really was exposed. It's one of our worst nightmares. She was not a prostitute. She was probably some reputable person, and now she's been exposed as a not reputable person. G. Campbell Morgan captures the moment here when he says this, Now what do we see? Incarnate purity standing and confronting the saddest thing in all human life. There's no mistake about the sin. According to his own declared principle, he was the only one who had any right to cast a stone at the woman. He that has no sin cast the first stone. Well, that cancels everybody else except for him. He was without sin. If we did not know the story so well, and I like what he says here, if we did not know the story so well and we were hearing it for the first time, we should almost stop with bated breath and say, what did he do? Which is what Art Katz felt when he read it for the very first time. The true wonder, brothers and sisters, and climax of this story is verse 11. After he says, is no one here to condemn you? No one. And Jesus says these amazing words, neither do I condemn you. Now we've already said that it's not right for another sinful, wicked human being to be condemning and judgmental towards another human being. But now we have God himself saying, They don't condemn you, right? Because it wouldn't be right for them to do that? No. Well, I don't condemn you either. Those are glorious words, aren't they? Upon those words is the basis of our hope. That Christ himself says, neither do I condemn you. But of course, for an entirely different reason, right? The crowds could not condemn her because of the law. They could not condemn her because of the law. On the other hand, Jesus would not condemn her because of grace. That's the only reason. Because he could have condemned her according to the law. But he would not because of grace. And this is the essence of Christianity, isn't it? That the holy and righteous God who has the ability according to his justice and his righteousness and the law. And let's make this personal for yourself now. God actually has the ability to throw a stone at you and to condemn you and to kill you and to send you to hell. He has the ability to do that. Not just because he's strong, but because he's just. He can do that, and it would be right. And the wonder of Christianity is that God is willing not to do that because of his grace, because of his mercy, undeserved, because he loves you. That's the only explanation. There's no other explanation. Why would he do? Why would he not condemn us? But that he cares and he loves for us. It's not because God thinks nothing of sin. God is not merciful to you because he doesn't think, because he thinks sin is no big deal. I hope that's not what you think. Yeah, we sin, but you know, We're finite and life is short and I haven't really done anything that bad so God doesn't think my sins are that bad and so he doesn't condemn me. No. And we see that 
Christ does think much of sin. He tells the woman, go and sin no more. So I'm not condemning you, but not because I don't think sin is a big deal. I'm here telling you, don't sin anymore. Not, not of course, as a condition for being forgiven. He's not saying, go and sin no more and I won't, I'll drop the stone, but I'll, as I see you walking away, I'll hold the stone and I'll watch you for a while. You know? It's not what he says. It's not a condition, but it does show that he isn't overlooking sin. He isn't passing over sin. He isn't thinking sin's not a big deal. Nor does God not condemn us because he sets aside his law. I know sin's a big deal and I know my law condemns you, but we'll just let it slide because I don't feel like being a just God today. He's not able to set aside his law. And so the wonder of it is, how then can he not condemn you and me and this woman if he can't set aside his law? And the reason is, of course, as, as Christians we know this, is because of the wonder of the cross that Jesus Christ came into the world not merely to teach, but to die for our sins. And apart from his death on the cross, there could be no forgiveness. He could not have said to that woman, I don't condemn you either. If he had not come to die on the cross, to take our sins upon himself, to take this adultery, to take even our self-righteousness upon himself, all of our wickedness, our hatred of God, our evil, and bearing it himself, and paying the penalty himself, he makes it possible for God to forgive. In the cross, we see that God remains true to himself. It's interesting that in this dilemma, they think he's going to remain true to himself, isn't he? But in doing that, he's going to oppose the law and get himself into trouble. And that's actually not true. And the, the amazing thing about the cross is that God can remain perfectly true to himself, true to his justice, true to his grace, without being anti-law without contradicting himself in any way. That's the amazing thing about the cross. Every other religion that doesn't have the cross, they always have to um, compromise either God's law, his righteousness, or his grace. And it's not by adulterers being stoned to death that iniquity is purged from society and from Israel and from God's people. It's actually through the death of Christ that the sin and iniquity of Israel and of people is taken away and purged. We could kill all the sinners and we wouldn't purge the world of iniquity. We'd just all perish, wouldn't we? It's the cross that purges iniquity. So in closing this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, I'd like us to meditate personally upon how this story is not just about the woman long ago, but it is about you. It is about you. You are that woman. In the story, there's three parties, aren't there? Jesus is one party, the woman is a second party, and then there's the third party, these leaders who come kicking this woman before them in their self-righteousness. But there's only three parties in this story, and I'd like you to notice this well. There's only three parties in this story because of unreality and lies and perversity. Because when Jesus exposes the lies and brings to light the truth, he dispels one of the parties, doesn't he? The third party goes away. So there's three parties at the beginning of the story, and at the end there's just Jesus and the woman. There's just the Holy One and the sinner. And the reality is, 
There's only two parties in life. There's the Holy One and there's sinners. That's it. There isn't any third party. If there is a third party, it's illusionary. There's a whole bunch of self-righteous people who think they're not like the woman, but they really are like the woman, in fact. We are all the woman. We are all shameful, and maybe we're not exposed now as sinners, but we will be one day. Everything will be brought to light. And all that remains on Judgment Day, there won't be three parties, Jesus, sinners, good people. They'll just be Jesus and sinners. They'll just be Jesus and you, a sinner. And like this woman, God's law is against us. And Satan is like the accuser who says, this person should die, this person should be killed. And God can't set aside his law. The only thing that can save you and me, brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ. His death for us and his provision for us of righteousness in his death. It's a gift for us through faith alone. If you have not accepted Christ, then I want to invite you today to believe in him. If you've been thinking you're self-righteous or you're better than other people or you don't need Jesus, you need to know that this day you are like that woman. Whether you know it or not, you'll know it one day when Jesus returns and you need Christ. Recognize the lie of self-righteousness and the truth of Jesus and leave your perversity and believe. But I want to encourage us who are Christians If you have believed in Jesus Christ, then your sins are forgiven. And God's word to you is, I don't condemn you. Do you struggle with condemnation like I do? The Satan accuses me every day, puts his words in my ear. You're you're sinful, you're wicked, God won't have you. That's what he's doing all the time. But I want to encourage us this morning that Jesus has died for us. And if we believe, we are actually forgiven. And on judgment day, we will not be ashamed. We will not be embarrassed. We will be clothed with the righteousness that he's provided. And so in the light of that, I also want to encourage us, let us turn from our sins in gratitude, not as a condition. I'm not saying, you know, if you don't turn from your sins, you're not forgiven. But I'd like us just to meditate again on go and sin no more, that in light of what Jesus has done for us, we should have an attitude about our sins that is, my sins are ugly and wrong and I I should be turning from them. This is not something I should be indifferent about. But again, not as a condition, but because we've been forgiven and because God has revealed his love to us, what other response should we have than that? He loves us. He died for us. He takes the adulterers like us. He purges us of our sins and he makes us his bride. It's truly a glory. So praise God. So let's remember that as we take communion. He covered us with his death and he saved wretches like you and I. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for your son and his compassion and mercy for sinners. And I just pray again, Lord, that this morning as we've reflected upon the action and the words of Jesus, And as we take communion this morning and as we sing this final song, I pray that you would just hit us in a fresh way how apart from Christ we are as shameful as this woman, but Lord, that through Jesus and through his grace we are totally forgiven and cleansed and purged and accepted by you. And I just pray you'd hit us afresh with your amazing love. 
Show us again that you love us, that the only reason we have this hope is because you were willing to give it to us for no other reason but your grace and love. And Lord, we thank you and we love you. Help us to respond to you, Lord, in trusting faith and also, Lord, in uh, seeing our sins for what they are. And Father, we just thank you for your son again. In Jesus' name, amen.